Welcome to The S Factor. Now here's your host, Chuck Shazer. Oh, I absolutely love that song. It is perfect for The S Factor. Welcome to The S Factor. My name is Chuck Shazer. This show is all about science, the latest and greatest, the hottest science news, if you will, right here on Cruise 92.1 WVLT. You can catch me here the first Saturday of every month at 1 o'clock for The S Factor. I am Chuck Shazer, your host, your guide on this starship as we travel around the universe and visit different planets. Talk about all the all things terrestrial and extraterrestrial right here on the S Factor. Now this is a pre-recorded show again, so please no phone calls. Now, if you want to communicate with me, I would love for you to do that. You can reach me at info at scienceanimated.net or facebook.com slash scienceanimated and also twitter.com slash scienceanimated. And of course, as always, this show is brought to you by ScienceAnimated.net, home of Science Animated the Human Body. Now, kids are off now for the summer. Of course, COVID-19 changed a whole lot of stuff this year, including school and how kids learned. Everyone suddenly became homeschooled. So now that it's summertime and kids are home, if you want to give them a little extra boost of educational content, and I don't mean boring stuff, but I mean exciting stuff, my movie, I'm the creator of ScienceAnimated.net and also Science Animated the Human Body. Science Animated the Human Body is an action-packed adventure through the human body. It's unlike anything you've ever seen before, I can promise you that. It's a 2D animation, family-friendly. Everyone that has purchased the movie absolutely loves it. You can buy it as a digital stream. That's right, a digital stream for $9.99. And you can play it on any device. It's coming at you through from YouTube. That's a great value there. One-time fee. You can play it as many times as you'd like. Also, if you're a little bit old school and you have a DVD player or a Blu-ray player, let's say maybe your kids watch DVDs uh, or you throw a DVD in using their game console, you can do that as well because I also sell the Science Animated Human Body DVD, and that is $16.99. So both of those things are available now. Actually, I also have... There's a science animated coloring book that I'm working on now. And there's a freebie right now for my listeners. If you go to facebook.com slash science animated, you will see, you'll be able to see a free page of that coloring book. Actually release it. I'm really excited about it. That coloring book will be completed and available in the store shortly on scienceanimated.net. But if you want a freebie, you can download the PDF. You can print out as many copies as you want. If your kid's color one page and instead of oh that's it now we bought a coloring book and now that's it no it's a digital coloring book so you'll be able to print out as many copies as you'd like of course please do that for uh, your family only because selling these items helps keep me on air here and also you visiting my sponsors keep me on air too so i appreciate that very much the responsive has been fantastic and i want to thank you very much for that so here we are july 4th and actually, I am in my studio right now recording this from home. I'm not at Cruise 92.1 WVLT today. I'm, I'm at home doing this. And it is Wednesday, 
around 10 p.m. So you're listening to me right now. It's on the 4th of July at 1 o'clock. I'm hoping it's nice weather, and I'm hoping you're getting that grill out and you're ready to spend some quality time with friends and family. Boy, have we been through a lot this year, haven't we? And, you know, spending time with people that you love, friends and family, that's the way to go. And I want to wish everybody out there a happy and safe 4th of July. And thank you for inviting me into your home so I can talk about all this amazing science news. And there is a lot of it. It seems like every single month there's so much to talk about. Whether it's Elon Musk and SpaceX and NASA working with them. Or like last month I talked about the murder hornets. And by the way, if you have missed any, any S-Factor radio show, if you want to listen back, my show, this show started back in December of 2019. So if you want to listen to any of those shows, go to scienceanimated.net and you're going to see a button there in the navigation for S-Factor. Click on that. You can listen to this very radio show as a podcast. I prepare it as a podcast as soon as the show is over, as soon as it airs on 92.1 WVLT, I put it online as a podcast. So you can listen to all the past shows. And also I've been loading things on YouTube, usually the feature topic I've been loading on YouTube. So that's pretty cool too. So with everyone slowly, with our country slowly getting back into the groove of things, even though there are new restrictions like social distancing is a big thing, Wearing your mask is a big thing, but we're slowly opening up our country. Slowly. So, there, I know there are many gyms that aren't open still. So, I'm going to have Tawny Basil on the radio, and she's going to tell you, she's my sponsor from Tawny Fit. She's going to tell you a, a specific program that she has right now. It doesn't require you going to a gym. You can just contact Tawny at TonyFit at gmail.com, and she will guide you through the rest of the process. She has workouts tailor-made for each person that contacts her. I would dare say no two workouts are quite the same, and she'll help you with diet and all that stuff. That's Tony Basil. Let's hear what Tony has to say about what's going on right now with TonyFit. All right, folks, right now I have a great sponsor of the S-Factor radio show on the phone with me, Tony Basil of TonyFit. There's so many things going on with COVID-19 still. They started to open gyms up again. They're closed now. I don't, we don't know what the heck is going on. First of all, Tony, how you doing? I'm doing great, Chuck. How are you? Fantastic. And we're getting ready for the holiday weekend, of course. And I just wanted to talk to you about these gyms that are opening and closing. You know, there's a lot of turmoil still with COVID-19. What can you offer people through your program, Tawny Fit, during these times? During these times, it's pretty uncertain when gyms are going to open. Um, my offer is video chat sessions. This can be done through FaceTime, Skype, um, Google Duo, anything that you have. It's not a problem. Um, my sessions are 30 to 60 minutes, and they're based on your goals and on your experience. So this is a program that anybody can take a part can take part in doesn't matter your age it doesn't matter what your physical limitations are at this current you know time Correct. everybody has their own unique program that you're going to put together for them with your fitness program is that right absolutely 
Now, the, do people have to have weights? How? What's involved in that? No, actually, no. If you don't have weights, that is not a problem. You have your body. So, since we have the social distancing and gyms are closed, you can still work with people and help them get in the best shape of their life, change their life for the better. And there's never a bad time to do that. There's never a wrong time to do that. Right. And don't think just because it's summer and, you know, it's already the time that it's too late. It's not. It's never too late. Yeah, I think some people probably get a little depressed and think that it's too late to get in great shape. But it isn't. Why? why I mean, start... Turn that new leaf today and contact Tawny Basil. She has programs, fitness programs for every shape and size, every age. Give her a call. Tawny, why don't you give the folks out there listening to S-Factor some of your contact information so they can get started on that journey? Sure. I am Tawny Fit on all social media. My number is 609-674-8077 or you can email me at tawnyfit@gmail.com. Tony, thank you for joining us today. Folks, if you want to get in the best shape of your life, contact one of our great sponsors here, Tony Basil at Tony Fit. You will not regret it. You'll get in the best shape you've ever been in from the comfort of your home now. Tony, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much, and well wishes to your families during the pandemic. Now, we enter the science news. This according to Forbes. There are at least 36 intelligent alien civilizations in our galaxy, says scientists. It's the oldest and greatest cosmic question of all. Is there anybody out there? For years, all we've had is the Drake equation to help us understand the question, but no indication of an answer. Now a group of scientists at the University of Nottingham think they've come up with a new cosmic evolution based calculation, or rather an estimation, that suggests that there are likely to be at least 36 ongoing intelligent civilizations in our Milky Way galaxy. And I know there are a lot of people out there, within the sound of my voice, that are saying to themselves, Aha! I knew it all along. We cannot be alone. There's no way. The Milky Way, home to our solar system, is estimated to have 100 billion to 400 billion stars and roughly one exoplanet per star in our galaxy. Published in the Astrophysical Journal, the new paper examines the likely number of communicating extraterrestrial intelligent civilizations in the Milky Way. It assumes that intelligent life comes to occur on other planets as much as it has done on our own. It actually makes a lot of assumptions. Indeed, way too many assumptions for some that doubt its generous conclusions. A key assumption is that it takes around 5 billion years for intelligent life to form on other planets, as it does on Earth, but that life is probable. That's a big assumption for sure. Another is that a technological civilization will last at least 100 years, as ours has, thus far. After all, it took 4.5 billion years of evolution before a technological civilization arose on Earth and was capable of communicating. Now I'm sure there have been plenty of cataclysms over the years. Actually, we know there have been when we look at fossil records. But humankind, or we weren't humankind back then, but the Neanderthals and eventually Homo sapien, 
we were very resilient to those cataclysms, were we not? We're still here. To the point where, of course, we have we have plenty of things that can wipe us out extraterrestrial-wise, and I don't mean aliens. I mean asteroids. I mean coronal mass ejections from the sun, knocking us back into the Stone Age. Maybe a rogue planet. Maybe a black hole. Maybe a gamma ray burst. There's plenty of things from the outside that can wipe us out very quickly. But how sad would it be for us to actually do ourselves in with technology? That would truly be sad. Hopefully it doesn't happen. So you're looking at how we are making this assumption that an alien civilization hasn't done that to themselves, wiped themselves out once they hit a certain technological threshold. The number of civilizations depends strongly on how long they are actively sending out signals of their existence into space, such as radio transmissions from satellites and TV. The calculation which says that there could be 36 active communicating intelligent civilizations in our home galaxy on 4.5 billion years or more Earth-like planets around Sun-like stars is called the Astrobiological Copernican Limit by the researchers. It takes this into account. Star formation histories. How common metal-rich stars are, like our sun. The likelihood of stars hosting Earth-like planets in their habitable zones, or as many scientists call it, the Goldilocks zone. Earth, just like every planet in our solar system, orbits the sun. We just happen to be like the Goldilocks zone states. We are just, it's just right. It's like gold, Goldilocks. The parge was too, one, one uh, parge was too hot. One was too cold. And then she found one that was just right. That's where we are with our distance from the sun. A little bit closer would be too hot to, to exist here. Too far away. Well, for us anyway. A little further out, it would be too cold. But what they're finding is, Earth-like planets within that habitable zone. Some of them are super-Earths, by the way. So they look for these things. The habitable zone being one of them. The classic method for estimating the number of intelligent civilizations relies on making guesses of values relating to life. But opinions about such matters vary substantially. The new study simplifies these assumptions using new data giving us a solid estimate of the number of civilizations in our galaxy. The estimation of at least 36 civilizations is based on a very positive outlook on how, where, and why life comes into being. And there is also a wide error bar. It could be that many, many more alien civilizations exist. It could also be that none exist. Ooh, how sad would that be? However, the authors note that the average distance to one of these 36 civilizations is around 17,000 light years, so detection and communications is currently impossible. There's also the thorny question of how long intelligent civilizations tend to survive. Now, that's an interesting one. Again, does technology inevitably lead civilizations to destroy one another? Searches for extraterrestrial intelligent civilizations not only reveals the existence of how life itself forms, but also gives us clues about how long our own civilization will last. 
If we find that intelligent life is common, then this would reveal that our civilization could exist for much longer than a few hundred years. Alternatively, if we find that there are no active civilizations in our galaxy, it is a bad sign for our own long-term existence. And that was an article by Forbes. And, you know, I'm going to... You, you want to try to be optimistic about this. You know, so basically what they're saying here is that if, if alien life is abundant, if intelligent civilizations are abundant in the galaxy, and our own Milky Way galaxy, they're saying there's at least 36 of them in our Milky Way galaxy, closest one being 17,000 light years away. If that is true, the odds are great that we'll reach Hopefully we'll hang around a lot longer than if that is not the case. Because if that's not the case, and there is no intelligent life out there aside from us, it looks quite grim for us as far as our future in space and our future existence as human race. So hopefully that's not the case. Hopefully, um, and by the way, not only do we hope that there is intelligent life out there, hopefully it is uh, benevolent. <laughs> by the way. Now from space.com, how the coronavirus pandemic can help us prepare for an asteroid impact. The emergency preparedness activities now underway to combat the coronavirus pandemic offer insight about our readiness to deal with a dangerous incoming asteroid, experts say. Humanity can learn some valuable lessons about planetary defense from the things that have gone right and wrong in the coronavirus fight. According to asteroid scientists in an authority on emergency preparedness. Speaking for myself, the novel coronavirus is a good case study of mistakes to avoid when planning to prevent an asteroid impact, said Thomas Jones, a scientist, author, and retired NASA astronaut who flew on four space shuttle missions to Earth orbit. He chairs the Association of Space Explorers Near Earth Objects Committee. The global response to the virus has illustrated some cooperation through the World Health Organization, Jones says. But as some of the data given to the WHO has been spurious, false, or incorrect, that organization's response was stymied and delayed somewhat. Most nations have chosen their own path, granted with international expertise and consultations, in responding with their own interests uppermost. Resources and manufacturing priorities were allotted individually, nation-to-nation, with subsequent delays, Jones said. That is understandable, but it's not a good model for dealing with an asteroid impact threat. A fragmented, staggered, and uneven response to an impact threat is a recipe for delay and inaction, foreclosing options to deflect the asteroid. Now, that's very important. Now, think about this. What what he is saying here, what what this astronaut is saying, is that it seems like he's quite troubled. He's quite troubled by the fact that we were in quite disarray as a whole. And I, don't, and I mean us as a whole. I mean all nations together. If you gave us a grade as a human race, all of us, every nation, every people, everybody, if you were to give us a grade, it doesn't sound like it would be very, very high. <laughs> because this pandemic was a threat. In the beginning, we had no idea how much of a threat it was going to be. 
it could have turned out a lot worse. They knew very little about this virus in the beginning. So what he's saying here simply is this. Our inaction, our, our, how things were stymied, does not bode well for, you know, an extraterrestrial threat like an asteroid impact. This kind of, I mean, we have work to do as a whole when it comes to these things because it doesn't matter how rich, doesn't matter how poor you are. It doesn't matter what class you fit into in the economic hierarchy. If we don't get our act together as a people, there's no chance that we'll be able to work together to get a threat like this underway. Now, I would hope that if they spotted an asteroid, God forbid, coming our way, that everyone would just put their differences aside and, and work around the clock to save us, to save everyone here. What we have done, what we have built, what we are, how far we have come, how far we have evolved, what our technological advances are today. With our technological advances in medicine, and, and, and I mean, it's the best time to live right now in the history of Earth. So I would think we would want to preserve what we've built here. We'll need transparent sharing of all observations of the object and international vetting of all the impact predictions, he added. Any required deflection campaign will only succeed if an internationally supported consortium develops and carries out the effort with ongoing shared insights into every step of development. Jones said that without that shared confidence, Nations will defend themselves unutilaterally, leading to lost time, wasted resources, and increased risk of failure. Open cooperation gives us the best chance to assess the threat properly, mount a series of credible deflection missions if needed, and turn away an impact catastrophe. There are some parallels between the pandemic the globe is experiencing and the hazardous asteroid concern. The first is, of course, the importance of early detection, Johnson told Space.com. The earlier you detect the threat, the more chance you have to take actions to prevent it before it can have significant impact. Then there's the same aspect of being adequately prepared for an event that, at some point in the future, is inevitable. A devastating asteroid impact is going to happen, just as another dangerous disease is going to emerge. The question is just when. This makes prudent actions important to be prepared. Stockpiling of medical supplies and equipment in the case of pandemics, having adequately tested several measures for deflection in the case of asteroids. Now Johnson added that funding needed for planetary defense, perhaps about $200 million per year, is probably significantly less than what we might be prudent, but might be prudent for preparation against a pandemic. Linda Billings, a consultant to NASA Astrobiology Program, and the PDCO also points to technological preparedness, particularly the need for a space-based near-Earth object survey telescope. Aha, that's a good idea. The small bodies community has been saving this for years, she said. Furthermore, better ground-based observing systems and more missions to demonstrate deflection techniques are also needed, Billing said. As for lessons learned given the pandemic, be prepared and don't wait till disaster occurs, she said. In the communications area, there must be clear, concise, consistent messaging, which we do not have in a pandemic situation. 
The near-Earth Object Awareness Strategy and Action Plan lays out who's in charge of what in the event of an actual impact threat. Potential asteroid impact and pandemics both demonstrate that low-probability, high-consequent events are really hard to get people to care about and prepare for. We've known about both for a long time, but knowing and caring are two different things. By definition, rare events are infrequent, and as time passes since the last one, the threat loses its emotional valiance. Without that, it turns into an abstraction, only an idea that doesn't feel viscerally real and threatening. And that's what it takes to get the major investments required to prepare for something with large consequences. Sadly, and as proof of the point, this has been said many times before about many risks, almost always in retrospect. When the fear is deep enough and real enough, we prepare more. Usually, however, it's not. So that, was from, that comes at you from space.com. Now, they're right. As a human race, it seems like we don't worry unless it's right in our face of a big threat like that. And remember, we've had, you know, meteorites come in, you know, wipe out, you know, a, a portion of a forest in Siberia, things like that. But we haven't been hit with an asteroid in modern times that has done, like, wiped out a city, let's say. That would wake us up and say, wow, this is real, we got to prepare for it. Just like coronavirus. The coronavirus pandemic woke us up, and now, you know, I believe that things will be a little bit different moving forward, like people will be more mindful to wash their hands and things like that, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. I don't want us to have to have some kind of an asteroid impact for us to wake up and say, hey, we, we really need to do something about this. It's the same thing with the solar flare situation. It would be devastating for a coronal mass ejection to come from the sun, hit our planet, just their planet is just right in the line of fire, and boom, we lose our grid. There's no more electric. Those of you kind of addicted to your phone, and let's face it, who of us are not? <laughs> Think about that for a minute. Your, your smartphone will not be functioning. And I've heard estimates that it could take 10 years to get the grid back up. You're talking about bedlam, folks. So let's, let's avoid that. Let's do something about these things now. Hardening of the electrical grid. Contacting your local congressman or senator is probably a good place to start. These are real things, even the asteroid threats. There are amateur astronomers that are watching these things and cataloging them. We, we know where lots of them are. We don't know where all of them are. But these are real threats, you know. It's just as real as, you know, nuclear weapons and things like that. And I think that we, you know, should be concerned about them and be aware of them. These are extraterrestrial threats that, can, that could really give us a bad day. It would really be a bad day at the office, so to speak, wouldn't it? We don't want that to happen. So I think this, what we're talking about here, is quite true. People don't seem to act unless something is staring them in the face. And there's no reason to do that with these things. We, we know about them. We know what the damage that they can inflict. And... Like I said, you know, writing your, your congressman or senator and saying, listen, let's harden this electrical grid. 
what's going on with uh, asteroid preparedness, things of that nature, extraterrestrial threats, and again, not meaning aliens, but things that are, that can happen to us that are coming from space. They're real threats, folks, and um, I think we should pay attention to that stuff. We're going to take a quick commercial break, and when we come back, more science news, and then the feature topic, which is, of course, goes right along with this holiday, the science of fireworks. You are listening to The S Factor. I'm your host, Chuck Shazer. We'll be right back. Summer is finally here. You could grill outside now. You can go swimming in your pool. You can enjoy your yard. But what if you want to change the scenery? What if you want a new house? There are plenty of beautiful homes in the area, and interest rates are extremely low. Take advantage of the low rates. Now is a great time to buy. Now maybe you'd like to finally purchase that investment property you've always wanted, or maybe you'd like to sell a home or property. Realtor Tyra Shazer can assist you in buying or selling any home or property. Contact Tyra Shazer at Remax Platinum Properties at 609-402-1992. Again, that's 609-402-1992. Or email her at tarasdreamhomes at gmail.com. Hi, I'm Tara Shazer, and I'm ready to help you find your dream home. Welcome back to The S Factor. I'm your host, Chuck Shazer. You can catch the S-Factor right here on Cruising 92.1 WVLT the first Saturday of every month at 1 o'clock. I also want to thank everybody out there for uh, purchasing things from scienceanimated.net, my, my website. Thank you for visiting my sponsors. All of those things help keep this show on the air so I can get out the, you know this great science information great science news, and great science education, and I really hope you're enjoying it. And if you want to drop me a line, you can contact me at info at scienceanimated.net or through Facebook at facebook.com slash scienceanimated or Twitter at twitter.com slash scienceanimated. I would love to hear from you. Questions, comments, if you want a question read on the air, please contact me through those channels. Now, I had to read this next news story a couple of times before I realized it was real. NASA is offering $20,000 for best idea in astronaut toilet challenge. <laughs> yes, you've heard that correctly. NASA on Thursday launched a crowdsourcing campaign offering $20,000 to the person who comes up with the best design for space toilets ahead of the agency's 2024 Flight to the moon. That's exciting, by the way. Can you imagine with our, with our camera technology now that we have, how spectacular that's going to be to watch footage of astronauts going to the moon? That's going to be amazing. I'm sure there's going to be like a 24-hour channel that NASA's going to have up. I'm excited just talking about it. Back to this toilet matter here. The agency issued its call on HeroX, a platform where organizations can be can use crowdsourcing to fund innovative solutions to complex problems. While space toilets are already in use at the International Space Station, they're specifically designed for microgravity, meaning people and objects appear to be weightless. But a mission to the moon would require a special design for the shuttle's toilets to work in lunar, lunar gravity, which is approximately one-sixth of Earth's gravity. 
The design for the space toilet must adhere to certain specifications. For example, it must weigh less than 33 pounds in Earth's gravity, measure no more than 4.23 cubic feet, consume less than 70 watts of power, and accommodate both sexes. While we may know how to make space toilets, we recognize that there are a lot of innovations going on in waste management from the no-flush toilet to waterless toilets and more. So we wanted to expand our knowledge base by using this challenge to find the unknowns that might be out there. We're looking forward to seeing what the crowdsourcing community can come up with that is out of the box and bring different perspectives for what is needed for a toilet. Agency is offering a first, second, and third place prize for $20,000, $10,000, and $5,000 respectively. The submission deadline is August 17th, and the winner will be announced on September 30th. So if you're out there, if you're listening to the S-Factor right now, and you have an idea for a space toilet, make sure you check this out. Could win some money. This next news bit comes to, comes to you from The Guardian. Scientists think a planet larger than Earth lurks in the far reaches of the solar system. Now a new telescope could confirm their belief and change solar system science. I don't know if anybody out there has ever read or saw anything about Eric Von Doniken and when he talks about um, this ninth planet lurking out there, Nibiru, as they call it. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that that's what this is, but let's see what they have to say about this. You'd think that if you found the first evidence that a planet larger than Earth was lurking unseen in the furthest reaches of our solar system, it would be a big moment. It would make you one of the only, one of a small handful of people in all of history to have ever discovered such a thing. But for astronomer Scott Shepard of the Carnegie Institution for Science in Washington, D.C., it was a much quieter affair. It wasn't like there was a eureka moment, he says. The evidence just built up slowly. He's a master of understatement. Ever since he and his collaborator, Chad, of Northern California University, first published their suspicions about the unseen planet in 2014, the evidence has only continued to grow. Yet when asked about how convinced he is that the new world, which he calls Planet X, <laughs> is really out there, Shepard will only say, I think it's more likely than unlikely. As for the rest of the astronomical community, in most quarters, there is a palatable excitement for about finding this world. Much of this excitement centers on the opening of a giant new survey telescope named after Vera C. Rubin, the astronomer who in the 1970s discovered some of the first evidence for dark matter. Scheduled to begin its full survey of the sky in 2022, the Rubin Observatory could find the planet outright or provide the clinging circumstantial evidence that it's there. How exciting is that? They're going to start surveying the sky in 2022. This observatory. They might find it. Discovery of the planet would be a triumph, but also a disaster for existing theory about how the solar system was created. It would change everything we thought we knew about planet formation, says Shepard. In another characteristic, another characteristic understatement, in truth, no one has a clue how such a large planet could form that far from the sun. The distant solar system is a place of darkness and mystery. 
It encompasses an enormous volume of space that begins at the orbit of Neptune, about 30 times further from the Sun than Earth, or 30 astronomical units. That's almost one-third of the distance from the Sun to the nearest, next nearest star. It was in the inner regions of this volume that America astronomer Clyde Tobah discovered Pluto in 1930. Although Pluto possessed just two-thirds of the diameter of our moon, it was originally classified as a planet. Do you remember that? Actually, it wasn't many years ago that they that Pluto got <laughs> demoted. By the end of the century, however, telescopes were bigger and astronomers were beginning to find more tiny worlds beyond Neptune. They were all even smaller than Pluto until 2005 when Mike Brown from the California Institute of Technology discovered Eris. It was at least the same size as Pluto and probably bigger. So if Pluto was a planet, so was Eris. NASA hastily organized a press conference and announced the discovery of Planet 10. About a year later, the International Astronomical Union ruled that Pluto and Eris were effectively too small to be called planets and renamed them dwarf planets. So the solar system's roll call returned to eight. Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, and a cottage industry of finding distant solar system objects really got going. The path towards Planet 9 began one night in 2012, when Shepard and Trulio were using the Cerro Tolo Inter-American Observatory's telescope in Chile. They were finding more and more distant objects, but one in particular stood out. Cataloged as 2012 VP113, they nicknamed it Biden after the U.S. Vice President at the time, because of the letters VP and the catalog destination. To their amazement, this far-flung world never came closer to the sun than about 80 AU. At its furthest, Biden would reach 440 AU into deep space, meaning that it followed a highly elliptical orbit. But that wasn't the most remarkable thing about it. By some weird coincidence, its orbit appeared to be very similar to that of another distant world known as Sedna. This mini-world had been discovered in 2003 by Brown. It immediately stood out because of its highly elliptical orbit, which swings from 76 AU to 937 AU. Objects, objects like Sedna and 2012 VP113 can't form on these eccentric orbits, says Shepard. Instead, computer simulations suggest that they form much closer and are then ejected by gravitational interactions with the larger planets. The truly odd thing, however, was that the two elongated orbits pointed in roughly the same direction. And the more Shepard and Trulio examined the other objects in their catch, the more they saw that these orbits were aligned, too. It was as if something was corralling these tiny worlds, like a sheepdog maneuvering its flock. And the only thing they could think of that was capable of doing that was a much larger planet. Aha. Uh -huh. Curiosity peaked. They did some calculations and discovered that the planet their results were hinting at had to be somewhere between 2 and 15 times more massive than Earth, on an orbit that lies an average somewhere between 250 AU and 1500 AU from the Sun. Their results were published by the prestigious journal Nature in March 2014, and interest in Planet 9 began to sweep the astronomical world. These days, Shepard can regularly be found using Japan's Subaru telescope on Maui Key, Hawaii. 
patiently scouring the sky for more evidence of Planet Nine, maybe even hoping that he sees the planet itself. Now that would be cool. The scale of the task is enormous. It really is like looking for the proverbial needle in a haystack. The planet, if it is even there, is very faint and the sky is very large. But help is on the way in the form of the Rubin Observatory. Rubin is a monster that will devour the sky. Whereas most telescopes would take months or years to survey the whole sky, Rubin will do it in just three nights. Then do it again, and again, and again, to see what's changed, and so catch the moving objects. Construction is near completion, and a telescope is set to open its giant eye for the first time later this year. Commissioning and tweaking will then take another couple of years. That survey is going to change solar system science as we know it, says Shepard. And if Planet 9 is out there, Rubin should see it. Nothing about that. This telescope will see Planet 9 if it exists. That is extremely exciting. And not only that, think about the potential of finding near-Earth near asteroids. So it's, it's incredible that they do this. It's very important for our survival as a species. So hats off uh, to the team here. We can detect an Earth-mass planet at around 1,000 AU. That puts Shepard's world easily within its sights. If others haven't seen Planet 9 before our survey starts then, I think all eyes are on the Rubin Observatory. Even if the telescope fails to see the planet directly, it will detect many more distant mini-worlds that can all be used to triangulate the planet's position more precisely, thus helping to narrow the search area. And if Planet 9 really is out there, then the consequences will be huge. Astronomers think that the solar system formed in a disk of matter surrounding the Sun. That matter condensed into smaller bodies, which then collided to form larger ones. At the end of this process, the planets were born. But the matter in this disk thins out further from the Sun, meaning there is not enough raw material to form a large planet in a distant solar system. To rescue the above theory, some suggest that Planet 9 was once destined to become a gas giant like Jupiter or Saturn and was so forming alongside them. However, gravitational interaction stunted its growth by hurling it into the dark. But Jacob Schultz of Durham University is skeptical. It's possible, he says, but it actually requires quite a lot of coincidences. That's because a single gravitational interaction can't do the job. Instead, a series of interactions is needed to place it in an orbit that never brings it back where it was formed. Schultz has a more exotic idea. Together with collaborator James Unwin of the University of Illinois at Chicago, he has suggested that the object corralling this distant worldlets is not a long-lost planet, but a black hole. If so, not even Rubin will be able to see it because black holes emit no light whatsoever. They simply swallow light and anything else that happens across their path. I should interject here, any, any unfortunate object that happens across its path. It is a tantalizing possibility because Schultz's black hole would have to be part of a long suspended but never proved pop, population of black holes that were formed shortly after the formation of the universe. But for the time being, most other astronomers seem more than content 
with the idea that there's a large planet out there in the darkness, just waiting to come into view in the next few years. And if Planet 9 really is there, then perhaps the first time Shepard sees it through a telescope, he will finally experience something akin to a Eureka moment. And that was brought to you by The Guardian. What a cool story that is, huh? Imagine they're constructing this observatory. Our vision will widen greatly. We'll be able to see more. And the more we can see, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> the more that we can prepare for something that could be potentially devastating. And we can hopefully avoid that cataclysm from happening. I have faith in humanity. I know we can do it. If we can pull together as nations and confront an external threat like this from space, like if, like if there's an asteroid or something like that coming towards us, I think we can do it. And like we mentioned earlier, sometimes we don't act as people until some, something is staring us in the face. Then it becomes real. Hardening of the electrical grid. You know, there were scientists that went to Washington and talked about that. There's very little interest. But, you know, it's something we should be concerned about. I know it's something that I think about. I mean, I think about it every day, of course, but it's certainly something to be aware of because it would throw us back into the Stone Age. And I don't know about you, but I really do not want to go back to a pre-electricity error. We're going to take a quick time out. And when we come back, we're going to talk about this science of fireworks. Fourth of July is today. And I thought that would be a really cool thing to interject into the show today because there's going to be a lot of celebrating tonight. And hopefully everyone's safe when they do that. Have fun with family and friends, but be safe out there, folks, if you're dealing with fireworks. But when we come back, we're going to talk about the science of fireworks right here on the S-Factor with your host, Chuck Shazer. Be right back. Car buying can be a brutal experience. Pushy salespeople and deals that are too good to be true. Choosing the right dealership is crucial in today's marketplace. So, where can you go? Since 1976, there has been a dealership in Vineland that is family owned and operated and has a diverse selection of cars, trucks, utility vehicles, and more. J&C Auto Sales at 1912 West Landis Avenue in Vineland can guide you through the car buying experience with no hassle and a laid-back atmosphere. The Shazer brothers carefully select each vehicle they sell and offer Carfax reports on all their inventory. Shop in a stress-free environment and get the vehicle you want at a price that won't rock your bank account. Stop by and mention the S-Factor for a special offer. J&C Auto Sales is located at 1912 West Landis Avenue in Vineland. You can give them a call today at 856-696-4072. That's 856-696-4072. Or check them out online at jcauto.net. Serving South Jersey for 44 years. Welcome back to the S-Factor. I'm your host, Chuck Shazer. Again, you can catch me here on Cruising 92.1 WVLT the first Saturday of every month at 1 o'clock. If you enjoy educational content, if you enjoy space, if you enjoy science, if you enjoy all things science, this is your show. Thank you for joining me today. We're going to get into the science of fireworks. Now, before I get started talking about the science of fireworks, I just want to tell everybody out there, whenever you're handling a firework, be very careful. No matter what kind of fireworks you have, read the directions 
use them only as they're intended to be used and never try to make your own fireworks or anything like that. How do they work? It's a good question, right? How exactly do they work? How do we get all those magnificent colors, all those magnificent patterns and designs in the sky? The 4th of July will always be special to me. It will always have a special place in my heart because I propose to my wife on the 4th of July under the fireworks. I was so nervous. My heart was pounding. I thought it was going to pound through my chest. But uh, I have an emotional attachment to the 4th of July because of that. Not only does our nation celebrate its independence, but I celebrate my engagement to my now wife, which is so cool. So let's get, real, let's get right down to the nitty-gritty of the science of fireworks here. Now, according to HowStuffWorks.com, if you have ever been to an aerial fireworks show at an amusement park, baseball game, 4th of July celebration, or New Year's Eve, then you know fireworks have a special and beautiful magic all their own. A good show is absolutely amazing. Have you ever wondered how this magic works? What is launched into the sky to make these beautiful displays? Just about everyone in the United States has some personal experience with fireworks, either from the 4th of July or New Year's Eve celebrations. Firecrackers have been around for hundreds of years. They consist of either black powder, also known as gunpowder, or flash powder in a tight paper tube with a fuse to light the powder. Now black powder contains charcoal, sulfur, sulfur and potassium nitrate. A composition used in a firecracker might have aluminum instead of, or, instead of, or, in addition to charcoal, in order to brighten the explosion. Now, sparklers are very different from firecrackers. A sparkler burns over a long period of time, up to a minute, and produces extremely bright and showery light. Sparklers are often referred to as snowball sparklers because of the ball of sparks that surrounds the burning portion of the sparkler. Now, a sparkler consists of several different compounds, a fuel, an oxidizer, iron or steel powder, and a binder. Potassium nitrate is common. The fuel is charcoal and sulfur, as in black powder. The binder can be sugar or starch. Mixed with water, these chemicals form a slurry that can be coated on a wire by dipping or poured into a tube. Once it dries, you have a sparkler. When you light it, the sparkler burns from one end to the other like a cigarette. The fuel and oxidizer are proportioned, along with the other chemicals, so that the sparkler burns slowly rather than exploding like a firecracker. It is very common for fireworks to contain aluminum, iron, steel, zinc, or magnesium. Now these are a dust in order to create bright, shimmering sparks. The metal flakes heat up until they are incandescent and shine brightly, where at a higher enough temperature, they actually burn. A variety of chemicals can be added to create colors. Now, aerial fireworks, which are the fireworks that we see, like that, you know, many townships set off, many cities set off beautiful fireworks in the sky that you see. Now, an aerial firework is normally formed as a shell that consists of four parts. Container, usually pasted paper in a string form into a cylinder. Stars, spheres, cubes, or cylinders of a sparkler-like composition a bursting charge, a firecracker-like charge at the center of the shell, and then of course the fuse, which provides a time delay so the shell explodes at the right altitude. 
Located just below the shell is a small cylinder that contains the lifting charge. The shell is launched from a mortar. A mortar might be a short steel pipe with a lifting charge of black powder that explodes in the pipe to launch the shell. When the lifting charge fires to launch the shell, it lights the shell's fuse. The shell's fuse burns while the shell rises to its correct altitude and then ignites the burning charge so it explodes. So think about that. How cool. I mean, everything has to be timed just right with these fireworks. Simple shells consist of a paper tube filled with stars and black powder. Stars come in all shapes and sizes, but you can imagine a simple star is something like a sparkler compound formed into the, a ball the size of a pea or a dime. The stars are poured into the tube and then surrounded by black powder. When the fuse burns into the shell, it ignites the bursting charge, causing the shell to explode. The explosion ignites the outside of the stars, which begin to burn with bright showers of sparks. Since the explosion throws the stars in all directions, you get the huge sphere of sparkling light that is so familiar at fireworks displays. How many of you out there have ever been to Disney World? Now, a close friend of my family's was, he lives in Orlando. And of course, now with the pandemic, they're not shooting off fireworks, but they would do that every single night. And he could see that from his house every night. Think about all the fireworks that the Disney company goes through in the Magic Kingdom in Orlando. It's got to be incredible. Now, the more complicated shells burst in two or three phases. Shells like this are called multi-break shells. They may contain stars of different colors and compositions that create softer or brighter light, more or less sparks, etc. Some shells contain explosives designed to crackle in the sky or whistle that explode outward with the stars. Multi-break shells may consist of a shell filled with other shells, or they may have multiple sections without using additional shells. The sections of a multi-break shell are ignited by different fuses. The bursting of one section ignites the next. The shells must be assembled in such a way that each section explodes in sequence to produce a distant, distinct separate effect. The explosives that break the sections apart are called break charges. So there's a lot of thought that goes into these fireworks, because think about it. You're lighting them on the ground. They have to have liftoff. And then when they, they reach a certain altitude, that's when the rest of it pops. And if it, and it, if it didn't do that, I mean, it, it's essential to the firework display for the firework display to be successful. I mean, it has to, that timing has to be right. So a lot of work and a lot of thought goes into these things. Now, as far as the display themselves, the pattern that an aerial shell paints in the sky depends on the arrangement of star pellets inside the shell. So the star pellets are responsible for all the, you know, the different sparkles that you see that are kind of shot throughout and make that circular pattern. So if the pellets are equally spaced in a circle with black powder inside the circle, you'll see an aerial display of smaller star explosions equally spaced in a circle. To create a specific figure in the sky, you create an outline of the figure in star pellets, surround them as a group with a layer of break charge to separate them simultaneously from the rest of the cont contents of the shell, and then they place the explosive charges inside those pellets to blow them outward into a large figure. Each charge has to be ignited at exactly the right time for the whole thing, or the whole thing is spoiled, like, <laughs> like we were saying. The timing has to be spot on with these fireworks. So that's a little bit of the science behind fireworks, how fireworks work, of course. 
If you're going to be dealing with fire, of course, first of all, I just want to say, just throw a disclaimer out there. Please don't try to make your own fireworks with gunpowder and all that stuff. Just leave it to the professionals that make these things. And then when you buy them from companies that are professional and, and make fireworks, please follow the directions. Do not use fireworks in any other way than what they're supposed to be and how they're supposed to be used per the directions on the box from the person that manufactured the firework. Please use extreme caution when dealing with fireworks. Like I said, please don't try to ever make your own. Um, I'm just explaining how these things are made, how they work, how they're able to get these bright colors. And of course, they add the coloring to get those bright colors in the sky. And it's all about timing, the things, things igniting at the right time. These star pellets, it seems to me, are very vital in, in, in giving you that beautiful pattern. Uh, the star pellets are charged at a certain time when it reaches a certain altitude. It is just, uh, what, a, what a science behind these things. Fantastic. And I hope that you guys have a lot of fun out there. And if you happen to use fireworks in any way, shape, or form today, tonight, or whenever, because let's face it, you can use fireworks at any time, not just for celebration, if you just want to have fun one night, but use extreme caution, be careful, read the directions, don't use them in any way other than how they're intended to be used. Use them the way they're intended to be used, please. I can't stress that enough. I want every, all my listeners to be safe out there, and I, want, I wish you nothing but the best. Enjoy this holiday. Thank you for listening to The S Factor. I appreciate all of the support, the purchasing of, of my products on scienceanimated.net, doing business with the sponsors of my show, it has been a tremendous experience, and it is such an honor for me to bring you the greatest science news, the hottest science news, and a really cool feature topic for the day. Again, thank you for joining me. You can catch me here on Cruising 92.1 WVLT, the first Saturday of every month at 1 o'clock. See you guys next month. Thank you for joining me. This has been The S Factor with your host, Chuck Shazer. See you next time, everybody. Stay safe. You have been listening to The S Factor, brought to you by ScienceAnimated.net on Cruisin' 92.1 WVLT. Money.